think people are nervous about something here, huh? A few weeks before I went to Africa, I had the opportunity to have a day of prayer and reflection. And so I hiked out to one of my favorite spots here locally just to kind of hang out there for a day to seek the Lord, to pray, to read, read the word. And I'm sitting in the midst of this beautiful landscape. It's at this, there's this waterfall, there's rocks, there's trees, there's, all this stuff is everywhere. And so I decided that I was going to sit there and I was going to look at each significant part of the landscape. And I was going to ask the Lord to illustrate something to me about himself. Now, I don't believe the rocks were talking or anything like that. That's not what I'm saying. But something that, that, that he, I would just be able to see that I maybe had not thought of. And as I looked around me, there were pine trees and oak trees that had to have been at least 100 years old. They were mammoth. I couldn't have wrapped my arms around them. Maybe three men couldn't have wrapped their arms around them. And as I stared at those trees and tried to see what that might illustrate to me about God or the Christian life or what the Lord might teach me through that, it occurred to me that it took both the sunny days and the rainy days to grow those mighty trees. That it took the sun to feed them and to give them the nutrients that they needed. And it took the rain and the wind to come and to nourish them and to give them the moisture that they need and to build them and give them the, the strength that it required. And as I reflected on that, I thought, you know, that is the picture of a Christian life. That to become a mature man or woman of God, to become a mighty man or woman of God, you need both the sunny days and the rainy days. You need both the seasons in which the sun is beating down on you and you're chilling at the beach. And you need the seasons in which the, the wind and the rains rage and beat against your house. It takes both to build up a great man or a woman of God. Now, I thought that the Lord was just giving me a clever sermon illustration I had no idea the storm that laid in wait for my family and me. See, I, I, most of you already knew I was in the midst of training to run a marathon. David McClendon asked me this morning, so is it marathon 2018 now? I'm not ready to say all that. But I was running one morning, and, uh, we, and I was in the midst of the run. I was running with my buddy, and I got just a little ways in, about a mile and a half in, and my stomach started to hurt so bad that I couldn't finish. And then this, the next day, the exact same thing happened again. And I'm about, this is about two weeks, week and a half before I was to leave to go to Africa. And so you can imagine, I kind of told Megan, I was having, my stomach's just hurting. As the week kind of went on, the stomach pain became more common and um, kind of just was always there and would kind of come and go. And, and so I went to a doctor. I actually went to two doctors that week because I was trying to put my worrying wife's heart at, at ease. Say, look, I'm going to go to Africa. We're cool. I'm good. Doctors say I'm fine. We thought uh, at the time it was a result of a medicine um, that I was taking. And so I stopped taking that and I seemed to feel better and off to Africa I went. 
Loved to go. Was excited to be there. Five days in, things are, have been going fine. We've, I've preached a couple of times already. We've done ministry uh, in a number of places there in the township uh, where we were ministering. But on Monday, five days in, as the day goes on, I start feeling progressively worse. My fever started low and then kind of got higher and higher and higher. And I think it probably got to the 104 to 105 range before the day of full body aches, pounding headache. Preached that night by the strength of the Lord. I had to walk outside and vomit as soon as it was finished. Um, yeah, you're welcome. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? Wasn't that good? And so I went home that night, and I was, I mean, just buried in blankets and shivering and just couldn't get all that straightened out. And so the next morning, the guys, they didn't even wake me up. They just left me there in a coma, and they went out to do the ministry. And so I was just kind of left there uh, in, our, in, the, in our lodging place by myself. Fever was there. Body aches were there. Headache was there. But I stepped outside about lunch, about 1230 that day, and just to, thought maybe if I just sit, feel some sun on me for a little bit, I might feel a little bit better. And while I'd, when I stepped outside, was it five minutes, and I felt the most agonizing pain in my stomach that I have ever felt. And now, you guys that have hung out with me a, a little while, you know I've been a bit of an adventurer, uh, and maybe mixed that with a bit accident prone. And so, like I've I've broken bones and I've torn knee ligaments. I've been knocked out cold mountain biking. Like I've done I've done all that deal. And, like, this was just a different kind of pain, you know. Like, so I'm standing outside, and I wasn't even sure that I was going to be get, able to get right back inside the building because I just I couldn't, couldn't move. I couldn't function. And there was a bed just inside the door there um, of the place that we were staying in the living room area. And I just I managed to get in, and I just collapsed uh, on top of that bed. And I spent essentially the next 24 hours in the fetal position. I could not move. I could not stand. I could not walk. Um, I had no strength anywhere that we went. Um, uh, Chris and John carried my things for me. Um, those men, by the way, were, were wonderful to me. They were nurturing brothers. Um, they, they went and, to their own expense and inconvenience to find me Gatorades and everything else that they could try. They say that I was a white as a ghost. And that night, I, I was supposed to preach. I did not give up not preaching until five minutes before uh, the service, which was a blessing to the guy that had to fill in for me. Um, but I just assumed that, you know, things would be fine, and I would preach that night, but I was, I was unable. Uh, but that night, we had a four-hour drive back to, uh, back to Verenigan from Lichtenberg, which is where we were in South Africa. And Steve Mann, who many of you know, uh, was, we were going to stay at his house in Verenigan that night. And so they cleared out for me the, uh, the back bench of the van that we were in, and I just curled up back there. And we're riding back. Now, if you've ever been in Africa, you know they don't have a lot of police presence there. So to slow people down on the roads, they, A, don't maintain their roads. Or, B, they put speed bumps in the midst of these roads. And so we're, you know, like the whole way just bumping and, and doing that deal. And it's kind of a, a miserable ride. But as I'm riding, the pain becomes more and more and more intense. And, and I, I have in complete integrity to tell you that is the first time in my life that I did not take my life for granted. That is the first time in my life that I thought I may die because of something that was health-related. I was able to, um, to surmise that this is an emergency level of, of pain. And it is at that time that I called my wife and Aaron uh, to let, not until them, because I did not want their, them to be worthy. That's why both of them are smiling uh, right now. 
And uh, my wife, I have now a copy of the voicemail so that I can squash all of the lies that have been spread about me putting her in terror by voicemail. Okay, I have a copy of the voicemail on my phone and can legitimize what I have been saying. But we're writing, and, and, and I'm in agonizing pain, and I, I, I don't want to be overly dramatic, but I, I genuinely was fearful for my life, and I began to, I prayed and prayed and prayed, and my prayer was, God, it's okay if I die, it's okay if I die doing this, would you please just let me die at home with my girls? Would you please just let me die at home with my wife and my, my daughters? And, uh. It was a terrifying experience. Um, obviously, you can see the Lord has been much, much kinder to me than that, much more gracious to me than that. That night at 1 a.m., by the goodness of the Lord, my fever broke. And, I mean, like, I'm sleeping in somebody else's house on somebody else's bed, and I'm sitting, we went through the mattress. I sweat through the mattress. And uh, so don't tell Steve, like, if you're hanging out, like, that's kind of weird. But, uh. And, uh, and I woke up the next morning, and I was able to eat for the first time in three days. I was, uh, my energy came back. My stomach pain, I tell everybody, went from like a 12 to like an 8. And so I said, let's go to Swaziland. We're going to go. And uh, so we went in another six days. And for another six days, I didn't have a fever. Um, I had, what I, I still believe, but bearable stomach pain, all of those kinds of things. When I look back, I know this was the hand of God. Um, that was ensuring, I think, the effectiveness of our trip and the well-being of me, myself, and I uh, on, on that trip. And so when we got back, I'd already caught Megan, had already made me a doctor's appointment to go. Um, that, the, my local physician here could tell that it was something urgent. Uh, I end up at UAB's, uh, UAB's ER, and when they come in with the, uh, the CAT scan, they say, this is a CAT scan of someone who should be in intensive care. Um, that you have 18 inches, or you have, they didn't know at the time how long, but you have perforations along your intestines, and you have a massive infection, and there's a, an abscess, and this is urgent. Um, and they said essentially that Tuesday, uh, while I was in Africa, and the pain was so, or that, yeah, the Tuesday, and the pain was so intense that my intestines essentially ruptured uh, that day, and due to the infection that had been stayed, stored up for a while. And so they had to perform a, an emergency surgery where they removed 18 inches of my intestines and did work on the abscess and I had an inflamed colon. They had to fix that. Um, now look, you realize I have prayed before surgeries with a lot of people over the last 10 years, okay? Like I, I'm, I'm plugged into the surgery scene a little bit. Now every person that I've ever prayed with, like worst case scenario is there like two, three days, okay? Most people go home. I have seen people have open heart surgery in their home in like two days, Okay? And so I'm asking him about this surgery, and he tells me, and, I'm, and it really hasn't even registered with me how big of a deal this is. And then he says, I'm going to be there for six days. And all of a sudden, I thought, what? Like, I have seen people on the verge of death come back and be resurrected from the dead in church on Sunday. And I'm going to be here, a 30-year-old man training for a marathon, no less. I'm going to be here for six days. And, uh, and so on the monitor that was there, you know, I have always had low blood pressure. And, man, it just skyrocketed, you know, and, um, and we were all laughing about it. But being laid up, I've been laid up for a number of weeks, as you all know. And uh, being laid up, I've had an opportunity for great contemplation and reflection in these days. 
And this has been uh, the most difficult season of my family's life. I know many of you have went through seasons much more uh, grueling, much more difficult than, than this even. And so I, I'm not in any way trying to like say that I have the great suffering or the great crisis of 2016. I'm just, I'm sharing you. I've already told you like, for me, like the way the Lord just works through me, like th- this is what I do, like preaching is what I do. And so the only way I know how to shepherd you and do this and to even cope with my own grief and my own struggles, like this is just what the Lord does. He just uses this as a mechanism even in my own life. And so I just want to share with you all just some of the things that the Lord has been showing me in this season. Share with you all some of the things that, that I have learned and some of the things that I have been able to observe that I have found incredibly fruitful in my walk with God, incredibly helpful in just my outlook on life and the way that I see things and the perspectives uh, that I hold. And I want to do that by going to the passage of Scripture that the Lord has brought me to most often. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. John, this water looks opened. So I don't know if somebody's been using this, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hook it up. So, all right, squirt bottle. So it's got a little squirt there. That's pretty cool. All right, uh, come back. Everything's different. James chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, stand with me in honor and reverence for the inspired word of God. We're going to be in James chapter 4. We're going to read verses 13 to 17. Verse 13 says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his inerrant word this morning. You may be seated. As we come into James chapter 4 here, beginning in verse 13, we have James beginning a section that's going to continue on into chapter 5 in which James is issuing rebukes to the wealthy. James frequently takes up the teachings of Jesus, essentially the teachings of Jesus, and even more in particular, the Sermon on the Mount. It's kind of the outline for the book of James. And so we have James here picking up Jesus' frequent topic of talking to the wealthy. In our passage, James is even more focused than that, in that he is talking to a group of wealthy Christians. And so to a group of wealthy, affluent Christians, successful in the world Christians, James is issuing a pointed rebuke. But I think what we will find true for each of us is that in this rebuke is such a universal truth, such universal principle that it is applicable to each of us no matter what socioeconomic group we identify with. Truthfully, even more truthfully, if you made more than $1,500 last year, you are in the world's top 20%. So even how you define rich is we must be careful. But I think it's important as we unpack this a little bit and see James's rebuke to understand what James is rebuking and what James is not rebuking. That, there, that is, what is the sin in view here and what is not a sin? 
You see, it is not sinful. James is not rebuking these men for making plans. James is not rebuking these men for making business plans. James is not rebuking these, pl- these men for investing or trying to grow their business. He is not rebuking them for being affluent or being successful or being wealthy. As a matter of fact, I don't believe that James is rebuking these men for any action at all. It is not a sin to be prudent. In fact, we know, having studied the book of Proverbs not long ago, that the Bible upholds prudency. That the Bible upholds those who understand that tomorrow may come and we should be prepared for that. That the Bible upholds those who understand how connected life is. And the Bible upholds saving and investment and being wise. And so we do not have James here condemning those who plan ahead and commending those who fly by the seat of their pants. No, I think verse 17 is the key to understand what is in view. (coughs) Verse 17 is a very straightforward uh, proverb almost, command by James, or, or statement by James. He says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So he's summarizing everything. Your, your Bible may say, therefore. My, my translation says, so. So it's pointing us back to those things that have just been said. He's saying this now in summary. He's saying, those people who know what they should do and do not do it, for them, that is sin. So James, in this passage, is not so much speaking to sinful action as James is speaking to sinful inaction. It's not the things that these men have done. It is what they have failed to do. It is what they have neglected. Their plans are not the problem. The the fact that, that they intend to go to a particular city and conduct a particular business is not the problem. The problem is what they have excluded from their plans. Perhaps even better to say, the problem is who they have excluded from their plans. That they have made plans and they have done all of these things. And as Christian men and women, they have done all of them as though they are in control. And so the problem is not their plans. The problem is not their action. The problem is their inaction. It is probably true for most of us. That the greatest areas of sin and sinfulness in our lives perhaps are not those areas in which we are committing sinful action, but those areas in which we are living in the midst of sinful inaction. It's the Spirit prompting you to share your faith and you rejecting it. It's rejecting the the Spirit telling you to to give to the, the poor or needy man that crosses your path providentially. It's lacking the courage to defend the faith when the opportunity arises. It's being too busy to help meet the needs or bear the burdens of your Christian brothers and sisters. It's failing to have a devotion life and to delight in the Word of God. It's failing to skid on your face before God and to seek Him in earnest and with diligence. That the issue in the Christian life is not just have you not murdered or have you not stolen. The issue is are you a man or a woman that lives their life not just not doing the wrong things. But are you willing to be courageous enough and godly enough and resolved enough and filled with the spirit enough to do the right things. 
that sinful inaction is just as detestable before a holy God as sinful action is. And so in James's mind, that's what's in view. In James's mind, that's what he's rebuking here. James is rebuking sinful inaction. So what is the sin? We know what the sin is not. What is the sin that James is specifically rebuking here? James is rebuking these men for the sin of presumption. Presumption. That is, they presumed that they were in greater control of their lives than they actually were. They took for granted that they had more under their control, that they had more within their purview, that they had more authority to live their lives than they actually had. We can see a few different ways that James gives us that these men were presumptuous. First, it says uh, that... They say, today or tomorrow we will go. So they presumed upon tomorrow. They took for granted as though tomorrow was a certainty. I find this to be particularly true of worldly successful people. They assume that they are above the law. They assume that they have greater authority and greater control over their lives than they typically do, than they actually do. They assume that because they have always been able to do what they want, the way they want, when they want, they'll be able to do that again yet tomorrow. And that's what we see in the lives of these wealthy merchants in James 4. That of course tomorrow will come. Tomorrow will come because I want tomorrow to come. Tomorrow will come because I plan for tomorrow to come. Tomorrow will come because I have done everything necessary today and, to, I am too, and my plans tomorrow are too important not to happen. So certainly tomorrow will come. And so they, they, they spoke of tomorrow as though it would come just because they willed that it come. Secondly, we see that not only did they presume upon tomorrow, but they presumed upon the place in which they would go. They presumed upon their location. It says, tomorrow we're going to go into such and such a town. We're going to go into such and such a city. As though, well, of course you will. Of course you will. Of course, the, the, of course your health will hold up. Of course, uh, of, of course you won't be robbed. Of course, there won't be military action that day. Of course, the road won't be shut down that day. And so they were presumptuous, presuming that they could go where they want to go. You can imagine these guys. You know the type. They've done demographic studies. Like, they know the city they're going into. They know that there's not a Starbucks over the ridge here on this side of Galilee. And so they're going to they're gonna go in there and they're going to set up a little coffee shop and make bank. So they, 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 they've done all the studies. They've got all the research. Of course they can go. Of course they will go and they will do what they want the way they want because they are in control. And then we see that they not only presume tomorrow, they not only presume where they will go, but they presume even the success that they will have. They, of course, we have been successful in the past, we have gotten rich in the past, we have figured out our plans in the past, so certainly we will only get richer in the future. That everything I touch, touch it turns to gold. Everything that I do is brilliant. Everything that I do is of a master plan. So again, I will do it. And again, the rich will get richer. The wealthy will become wealthier. And in doing all of it, 
these wealthy Christians in James 4. In fact, these American Christians in James 4 take for granted and presume upon the blessings, the provision, and the protection of God without ever even giving him a single acknowledgement. The sin was not their plan. The sin was not their business. The sin was not their investment. Their sin was their neglect of God. They assumed that they were too important for God to do away with them. They assumed that they were, they were too big within the culture, within the sight. Of course, God would bless them. Of course, that goes without saying. So it must not be, let's not even worry about that. That's going to happen. So I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to plan. I'm just going to get wealthy. I'm just going to go where I want to go, do what I want to do, be who I want to be. And James looks at these men and he says, you arrogant fools. Who do you think you are? You do not look in the mirror and see the truth. You look in the mirror and you are deceived. I think presumption may just be the most prevalent sin in the American church. Presumption may just be the most prevalent sin in the American church. Why is it that we teach our sons how to throw a curveball, but we fail to teach them the truth of the Bible? It's because we either assume we'll be able to teach them tomorrow, or we assume that somebody else will do it. Why is it that our college students, even our Christian college students, live up the party life of their peers instead of the countercultural lifestyle of the Bible? It is because they assume that they will one day be 25 or 30 or 35, and they'll get right then. They'll be faithful then. God will rescue them then. God will soften their hearts then. And so they will do what they want now because they take for granted that five years later is coming. Could it be that James might look at each of us and say, you arrogant fool. You look in the mirror and you do not see the truth. You look in the mirror and you are deceived. I can say to you with complete integrity that for 30 years I took my life for granted. That for 30 years, I took tomorrow for granted. I took my health for granted. I presumed over and over and over in my life upon the blessings and the provision and the protection of God. That over and over in my life, I presumed upon the, the grace of God. Because, of course, as a 30-year-old man, I will one day be an 80-year-old man. 
That of course, as the young preacher uh, out that, uh, that's been here three years, of course, someday I'll be the, the, the old preacher that's been here 30 or 40 years. I've always spoken of those things as though they are an unquestionable fact. And the truth is what I have done over and over in my life is I have convinced myself that I am important, more important to the plan of God than is truthful. I have convinced myself that, my, that God needs me to raise my daughters. I have convinced myself that God needs me to be the husband to my wife. I have convinced myself that God needs me to be the pastor of Iron City. But God has utterly and totally convinced me that he needs me for nothing. For nothing. Not in my family, not in my community, not in my church, not in the global scheme of things. God needs me to accomplish none of his will other than that which he has sovereignly put forth before me to see. And in his mysterious providence, I have no idea what that even is. And so over and over and over in my life, what I have found to be true and what I have seen as just kind of the earmark of my life over and over and over is just arrogance. Blatant, boastful arrogance. Because what I have found is that I do not own tomorrow. And you do not own tomorrow. And I tell you that because I want you to have what I have. Now some of you are getting nervous. I I don't want you to have an incision. Like, I don't want a scalpel to go across your torso. I don't want you to find that. I don't want you to be laid up for a few weeks or anything like that. But you know what else I can tell you with 100% integrity? Is that my surgery and my sickness made me happier. It made me happier. I'm not happy that I have what Gracie calls a crack from that goes all the way across my torso. I'm not happy that I can't yet pick up my little girls. I'm not happy that it still hurts to wear pants. I'm not, ha I'm not happy about those things. You know, Christians don't have to call bad things good. But I'm happy because now I'm able to enjoy things that I didn't even care about before. I've taken so many things for granted that as a result, I couldn't even be happy. That in my life, I needed mountaintop to mountaintop. Like I needed these, when I think about being happy, I thought about these huge watershed moments in my life. And even when those moments came, I typically couldn't enjoy them because they didn't satisfy me the way that I thought that they would. But as far as just the in-between times, in between those mountaintops, it was just enduring. It was just going through the motions. It was just doing the thing. And you know why? Because over and over, I took for granted the small, tiny, beautiful evidences of God's grace that is everywhere in my life. That is everywhere in my life. You see, I heard a great theologian once said, whose name I cannot remember, he was so great, that 
one of the markers of the fallen condition, one of the markers of the sinful condition is that human beings grow tired of things. That we build our houses to see a certain view and six months later we don't even notice it. That we marry the woman or the man that we were so infatuated with that we literally said, for better or worse, till death do we part. And then a year later, we're just kind of over it. That we buy a new car and we get in it and then we smell it and we got a grin and we're driving it. And then three months later, we don't even wash it anymore. But you know, I think a tag on to that. It's because we grow tired of things, a marker of our fallen condition is that we take things for granted. You know, I don't know that in my life I had ever praised God for feeling the breeze against my face. I don't know that I had ever praised God for seeing the clouds in a formation. I know for a fact that I've never praised God for driving through Golden Springs. I, I don't think in my life I had ever savored a kiss from my wife or a smile from my daughter or a cackle from my baby. But when you stop taking things for granted and you realize that tomorrow is not yours and tomorrow may not come and tomorrow may not be around the corner, then you can take in all of these millions of evidences of God's grace around you and over and over and over you can praise God. Praise God for the breath in my lungs. Praise God for that I, my eyes are open today. Praise God that I have a wife to hold and to hug. Praise God I have a daughter that smiles and laughs. Praise God I can feel the wind against my face. Praise God I can see the clouds painting the sky. Praise God. And when you see the little things... And you see each of them as evidences of the grace of a glorious and holy God that owed you none of it. Over and over and over, you can feel your durable joy persevering yet again. Over and over, a smile can go across your face and you can savor the glories of God. You see, when you stop taking things for granted... And when you can appreciate something as simple as a cool breeze, you can praise God whether you're on the mountain or in the valley. Whether the day is sunny or stormy. Whether you're in a hospital room or you're at Disney World. You can praise God and you can find sincere happiness and durable joy. And that's what I want for you. That's what I want you to find. And so what I think James gives us here is James gives us some perspective changers. He speaks us to us in a way so that he might, he might show us new perspectives and thus drain the presumption out of life. So that he might knock us off our presumptuous throne and we might behold us as we truly are and go before God as he truly is and be right with him. The first thing I think that we see is in verse 14 when he says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. You know, you may have a plan for tomorrow. You may plan to go to church. You may plan to go to work. You may plan to go to the bank. You may plan to spend more time with your kids. 
You may plan to make up with your wife. You may plan to have an affair. You may plan to end an affair. But the truth is, tomorrow is not yours. Tomorrow is not yours. Every plan of man is tentative. You've never set a tentative, a non-tentative date or a non-tentative calendar in your life. Tomorrow may bring cancer or tomorrow may bring healing. Tomorrow may bring joy or tomorrow may bring grief. Tomorrow may bring success or tomorrow may bring failure. Tomorrow may bring disappointment or tomorrow may bring redemption. You just don't know. Your plans are tentative because you don't own tomorrow. You don't control tomorrow. You don't see tomorrow. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 6, 34, Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. All of my life, because I presumed tomorrow, because I took for granted 10 years down the road, all of my life I have lived in irrational, paralyzing fear and worry. I've worried about things that were never going to be true, couldn't even be close to true, but I was certain that that catastrophe was going to strike me tomorrow, or five years down the road, or ten years down the road. People that would make threats about what might come or what might be, I would lay awake at night assured that that is what would be the case. And yet, God has said, why are you worried about tomorrow? You can't see it. I'm already there. I'm already there. You worry about today. Sufficient is today for its own trouble. See, when we put life in proper perspective, that's where peace and satisfaction and calm comes from. That's where the peace that goes without understanding comes from. When we get it and we believe everything is hinged on us and everything is built on us and we are the rulers of tomorrow and all of this is going to fall apart because we're falling apart, that's where the worry comes from. And so I am resolved by God's grace that I will worry, only, that I will worry today about only those things that will matter to me on the last day. That I will not worry about potential catastrophes that could happen tomorrow or I'm telling y'all, if you only knew how many times I was sure I was going to show up on a Sunday and nobody was going to be here. The church, I always think the church is going to fall apart as though I am in control of it. Could I invite you to come and join me in this resolution? That the only things that are going to matter and the only things that we should concern and worry ourselves with today are those things that will be significant to us when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ on the last day. I have spent my life anxious and worried about things I couldn't even remember six months after they happened. About things that were so irrational there was no possibility barring some Hollywood movie script of even taking place. I will worry myself only with the things that will matter on the last day. Will you join me? Look at your life. How much anxiety is there? How much worry is there? Could it be because you believe everything is hinged on you? 
And yet you do not own the future. You do not own the future. The second perspective changer I believe that James gives us here is he says that we are fragile and fleeting. He tells us at the end of verse 14, he says, What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. James says that our lives, that we are like the, the steam coming up from the cup of coffee. That we are like the fog that hovers over the pavement. That we are there one second and gone the next. In Isaiah chapter 40, the prophet says and compares us to grass. That is, greens up in May and then is brown and dormant by November. We are here one second and gone the next. That we are fragile, not in control of our own destiny, not in control of what will come today or tomorrow, not in control of what's around the corner, not in control of 15 years from now or 10 years from now or 5 years from now, not in control of any of that. No, we are fleeting. We are fragile. You see, mist is at the mercy of the wind. Mist does not decide that I'm going to go here or I'm going to go there and I'm going to do this. No, mist goes wherever the wind takes it, takes it. So are we in the providential plans of God. That yes, we are significant as his image bearers. Yes, we are significant as moral agents. But we are those who are working within the providential will of God. And we will go where his sovereign will takes us. So why can't we sleep? Why can't we rest? Why do our hearts race? You see, understanding who we are as mist, as dying grass before a sovereign, eternal God, as those who are finite and fragile beneath him, him who is infinite and eternal. When we understand that in proper perspective, then two things happen. One, we are humbled, and secondly, we are set free. You see, humility's in view here, right? The sin is arrogance. Arrogance. And so in James' mind, the need here is for humility in the lives of these wealthy merchants. And so what does he do? He says, do you remember who you are in light of who God is? You are weak and he is strong. You are fragile. He is omnipotent. You are dying. He is always alive. You are out of control. He is in control. You have no say. He has divine say. So over and over, he is bringing them back and he is saying, look at who you are and look at who God is and be put in your spot. And maybe that sounds discouraging to us. But what I want you to see is that really, it sets you free. It sets you free. God did not build you so that you would have the strength to be him. God did not build you so you could bear the weight of the future as only God himself can bear it. God did not build you so that you could bear the weight of the burdens of the world as only God himself can bear them. No. James instead has said in chapter 1 verse 17 that everything that you have, every good thing in your life, every good gift that you've ever thought about, perceived of, or never even considered. All of them are gifts from the Heavenly Father. 
And so do you have air in your lungs right now? It's a gift. You have a beat in your chest right now? It's a gift. Are you alive right now? Today is a gift to you from God Almighty on high. Take it captive and use it and enjoy it and love it to his glory. Today. You may not have tomorrow with your children. You've got today with your children. Bring your children and spend time with them today. Hold them today. Love them today. Enjoy them today. Tomorrow may not come. So take captive today. Be set free to live and love them and not worry about all this other stuff. Bring your wife close to you today. Get right with God today. Live a holy life today. Confess your sin today. Feel the rays of the sunshine on your neck today and praise God. Feel the wind in your hair today and praise God. See the mill on your table today and praise God. Take today captive and use it to God's glory, for God's glory, by God's grace. And then he says, essentially, by saying, he says that the, in verse 15, instead you ought to say. In other words, this is what you're missing. This is what you should have done. Instead you ought to say. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. What is he saying? Remember the sovereignty of God. But even beyond that, as you remember that God is sovereign, remember that you are not. As you remember that God is sovereign, remember that you are not. God is in supreme control, which means if he is in supreme control, you must not be. So again, he is bringing us and he is, he is causing, calling for us to contemplate. You see, he, I don't think that James is giving us here some superstitious uh, slogan that we have to tack on to every sentence. Like, I don't think we literally have to say, if the Lord wills, before everything that we say or we're sinning against God. What I think instead he, that he is telling us is that this is to be the, Christian's, the, the Christian with a gospel-centered life. This is the posture and the attitude of their life before God. I think sometimes you should say it. I think talking is certainly in view in the book of James. And even when you say it in front of your children and they ask you why, it's an opportunity to teach them the gospel, right? But that's not, the, the bigger picture here is that we are to live lives in which our attitude and our posture before God is, I intend to do this, I want to do this, I plan to do this, but only if it is your will only if it will bring you glory. Lord, whatever you will for me, let me just do that. So here's my plan. I understand that it's tentative. I understand that I'm not in control. I understand that, that you are supreme over that. This is my intention. But Lord, just whatever your will is, let me do that. And I'm telling you, unless you understand the doctrine, the richness of the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, you will never be able to cope with disappointment and difficulty and struggle in your life. Listen to these words by John Piper. He says, let us remember how wonderfully secure we are in the confidence that it is God who finally governs our lives. God and not chance. God and not our enemies. God and not disease. God and not the devil. 
I, for one, am very glad that my life is in the hands of an all-loving, all-wise, all-powerful Father. I pray that in the Gethsemane evening of my life, I will be able to say with Jesus, not my will, but yours be done, and then into your hands I commit my spirit. Rejoice in this. You are immortal until God's work for you is done. My experience has confirmed what my counseling has taught me. Every time I have counseled with someone that has went through a great tragedy in their life, that is when they want God to be sovereign. And that is, why they, that is when they need God to be sovereign. And the reason is, is that if God is not sovereign, then my surgery and my struggle and the struggles of all of you and the difficulties of all of you and the sicknesses that you face and the pains that you face and the tears that you shed, all of it is random, all of it is pointless. But if God is sovereign, if God reigns on high, if God is sitting on his throne, if God has decreed his will, then none of it, not one second of it, not my surgery, not your sickness, not your struggle, not your tears, none of it will be wasted in the plans of Almighty God. If God is not sovereign, I have no ability to cope with dead babies, rebellious children, and cancer, and surgery. But if God is sovereign and God is in control, then I can rest in that sovereignty. And I can know with assurance, with certainty, and with durable joy that I will persevere because God will ensure my persevering. And if not, the glorious day of when I will be brought up into his presence will come. And it will be even better than that after all. So brothers and sisters, I say to you today, find joy, find calm, find peace by stepping down off the throne of presumption and instead looking up to the throne of God. Let us pray together.